0: Um, I'll remind you if you're visiting with us this morning it may seem strange that we would be uh, in the, the crucifixion scene during advent season uh, and that's just by God's providence uh, we we practice expository preaching here at Faith Bible Church, which means we are normally walking through a book and we've been walking through Matthew uh, for a couple years now and we find ourselves during this advent season right at really the result, like I said in the prayer, the result of what the incarnation is all about. So it is not inappropriate to be here at all. And so we continue on in Matthew 27. We continue on with really the core of the gospel. And just to remind you, Jesus, as, as in all the rest of the gospels, this Matthew is focused. He's spending the, uh, the most uh, amount of time and driving to this moment. Leading up to this moment, Jesus has had the Last Supper with his disciples. He has explained in that Last Supper the significance of his death. This is my body broken for you. This is my blood, the blood of the new covenant for the forgiveness of sins. And then we saw in Gethsemane, him plead to the father. If there's any other way, if there's any other way, this might happen. If there's any other way forgiveness of sins might happen other than me going to the cross, but there wasn't, and he accepted. He accepted the Father's plan. It was the last moment for Jesus to turn back. And then we saw him go into the trial by his fellows, the trial by the the leaders of Israel, and them ask the fateful question, High priest asked where he said in Matthew twenty six sixty three, I adjure you by the living God. Tell us if you are the Christ, the son of God. Jesus said to him, you have said so, but I tell you from now on, you will see the son of man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. Jesus has clearly articulated that, yes, he's the king. He's the divine Messiah that they have all been waiting for. And on that basis, the Jewish trial concludes that he is blasphemed and is worthy of death. And so then they take him to the Romans, who have the power of capital punishment. And Pilate is asked, are you the king of the Jews? And he said, you've said it. Yes. And we've seen Pilate be coerced politically into crucifying the righteous, the innocent Jesus. The Son of God. And the way it ended last week is verse 26 in chapter 27 Then he, that's Pilate, released for them Barabbas, and having scourged Jesus, which I remind you is a process of a whip with nine or so strands, multiple strands, pieces of wood and bone and stone embedded in it, he'd be scourged publicly. Strips of flesh being ripped off his body, testin and bone being exposed, blood being spilled, and then after that, delivered over to be crucified, delivered over to his soldiers, which is where we pick up today. When we think about Jesus' trial and crucifixion, it's easy to think about it in a sanitized way. We need to work hard to understand the horror and humiliation of the cross. This, this is, there's no more humiliating and painful way to die in the ancient world. And so the thought, whether to Jew or to Gentile, of a crucified God-man, that somehow God would become man, and then somehow that God-man would surrender to the most shameful and humiliating death imaginable, that would be a barrier. That would be a barrier to the Jews. It would be a barrier to the Gentiles to say, really, you believe that this guy is king? You believe that he is Lord? But what Matthew does, and even in, he has been doing it, and even in particular in this section, what we see this morning the, the, uh, the, the humiliation of the cross doesn't discount Jesus from being king. It actually shows that he's king. That's the, the logic, the, the wisdom of the cross in God's eyes, that it actually confounds human wisdom and actually in the very thing that seems most humiliating and that would disqualify Jesus from being, God, uh, from being the God-man, from being the true king, actually shows that he is. And so that is the big idea this morning as we come to this passage. Acclaim Jesus as the true king because of, not in spite of, because of his humiliation through the crucifixion. Acclaim Jesus as the true king because of his humiliation through the crucifixion. And that's going to be the focus of the three sections we're going to break the text into this morning. And it's all going to be about before, during, before, at, and during the crucifixion. So we start first with Jesus is humiliated as king leading up to the crucifixion. Jesus is humiliated as king leading up to the crucifixion. Look at verse 27. So Pilate has handed Jesus over to his soldiers to perform the act of crucifixion. So we see what happens after he hands him over. Verse 27, then the soldiers of the governor took Jesus into the governor's headquarters. We're not exactly sure where the governor's headquarters are. There's two primary possibilities, but regardless, they take him away. It's been all public, a public trial. They take him inside. And here we have Gentile soldiers, these These are Romans in a sense, but probably they're more like auxiliary troops that are taken from the surrounding nations, but they're under the command of the Roman governor. And the soldiers see this as an opportunity for some sport. They gather the whole cohort before him, and a cohort at its maximum strength, it was 600 people. So 600 soldiers, we're not sure if if it's being used in the technical sense where it's a full 600, but at the very least, we're talking one to 200 people. One to 200 soldiers who are gathered before Jesus, surrounding Jesus. He's He's been scourged. He's a bloody mess. And what do they do? Verse 28, and they stripped him. It means they stripped him naked. And they put a scarlet robe on him, a soldier's cloak. That's the idea. So you've seen, you know, pictures of Roman soldiers with a red cloak. They take one of those red cloaks and they put it over his soldiers, but after made him naked. He's still exposed, even though he has a robe over him. And twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on his head and put a reed in his right hand and kneeling before him, they mocked him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews. Now, the, the word for hail there is just, normally, it just is a, the normal greeting, and it would be a, 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 a wish for well health. Literally, the word means rejoice. But in general context, it just became this way of saying, rejoice, long life, or in our in our language, we would say, long live the king of the Jews. What they're doing is a mock coronation service. They are doing everything to, that looks, they give a semblance of kingship. So we've got a crown, we've got some royal kind of looking robes, we've got a reed. Points to the actual trappings of royalty, but in such a way that it is total mockery. Remember the charge. The charge whether you're talking the Jewish trial, whether you're talking the Roman trial, whether you're talking here, the charge that Jesus will be crucified under is the charge of claiming to be the king of the Jews. That's how they mock him here. They're As Gentiles, as Roman soldiers, They this is absolutely absurd. Pilate thought the same thing. If Pilate actually thought that Jesus was the king of the Jews, he would have Gladly crucified him, but he knows he's righteous. He just thinks he's there's no way this guy is actually the king of the Jews. But for the readers of Matthew who have made it to this point, Matthew has again and again, from Jesus' birth and the circumstances of his birth, through Jesus' miracles and ministry and declarations and all of it, he has proven beyond a shadow of a doubt that Jesus is the king. And so in this moment, We see the soldiers mocking Jesus. But for Matthew's readers, there is just deep irony that this is the true King. This is the God man. And he is rightfully deserving of the most glorious coronation service in front of the eyes of the world that could be imagined. And here, he is humiliated to the utmost degree. And the soldiers continue, verse 30, and they spit on him and took the reed. It was something probably like a bamboo reed. They didn't have bamboo in that area, but you know, something that is not necessarily strong, but substantial, not a full-on staff. They took the reed and struck him on the head. And the idea is repeatedly: the verb tense actually shows this is happening again and again and again. We don't know how big the thorns were, but we can imagine, and we're led to imagine them digging into the brow of the true king. This is the depth of humiliation. And again, the Gentiles, the Jews, the Gentiles, they don't think this guy is king, but again, Matthew's readers see that it is. But as Matthew has done it again and again, and he does again here. Even in the depth of Jesus' humiliation, he proves that he is the king. Turn in your Bibles to, Matthew, uh, to Isaiah 50. Isaiah, in his latter chapters, especially starting in chapter 42, going through chapter 53, and even beyond, but We are introduced to this person who's called the servant of the Lord, the suffering servant, who's the one who's going to deliver Israel and by even, we get hints in Isaiah, uh, the nations from exile. But we also find out that this one, he is linked up even in Isaiah with being the Christ, the king, the Davidic king who's going to rule over Israel and all the nations of the world. And yet we also see that this one's going to suffer. Look at Isaiah 50. And I read this text a couple weeks ago and I'm going to read it again. I'm going to start in verse four and read to verse nine. The servant is talking here and he says this, the Lord Yahweh has given me the tongue of those who are taught that I may know how to sustain with a word him who is weary. Morning by morning, he awakens. He awakens my ear to hear as those who are taught. The Lord Yahweh has opened my ear and I was not rebellious. I turned not backward. I gave my back to those who strike and my cheeks to those who pull out the beard. I hid not my face from disgrace and spitting. But the Lord Yahweh helps me. Therefore, I have not been disgraced. Therefore, I have set my face like a flint. And I know that I shall not be put to shame. He who vindicates me is near. Who will contend with me? Let us stand up together. Who is my adversary? Let him come near to me. Behold, the Lord Yahweh helps me. Who will declare me guilty? Behold, all of them will wear out like a garment. The moth will eat them up. You you might ask yourself the question, what is Jesus thinking as he is being humiliated? Well, he's thinking something along the lines of what Isaiah 50 said, because he's fulfilling it. And Matthew is showing it. He, in his deep humiliation, shows that he is the rightful king. Jesus is trusting the Father through all of this. He is convinced, despite everyone against him, despite the shame that is being heaped upon him, uh, despite all of the false charges being brought against him, he is not ashamed He has set his way. He set his face like flint. He is going to the cross. And in so doing, in the midst of his humiliation, he shows himself that he is actually the true king. Now, that's before the crucifixion. Jesus is humiliated as king leading up to the crucifixion. We see that in verses 27 through 31. But we also see Jesus is humiliated as king at the crucifixion. At the crucifixion. Look at verse 32 back in Matthew 27. As they went out. So now they leave. They're leaving from the praetorium. The the governor's headquarters. And they're going to go out of the city. We've got a march. This is what would happen during crucifixion. Is that the condemned would march. From the place of condemnation. To the place of execution. Normally, what would happen is the condemned would carry the cross beam. So you think of the cross, and that's probably the right shape. There was a variety of shapes of crosses that were used for crucifixion, but the one you normally think of is probably right. And that cross beam, that's the part you would carry, not the whole thing. You would just carry the cross beam, and you would march on the way to execution. And then at the place of execution... You would be hoisted up or laid out on the ground. Uh, The crossbeam would be put on the vertical post and then lifted up. Some version of that. There are multiple ways it was done, but it would have been out of town. We're not entirely sure when the what what the what what location it is. It would have been outside the city limits, both the Romans and. The Jews would have wanted that. It would have been publicly visible because the whole idea of crucifixion is deterrence. Don't you dare do what this man did, otherwise you'll end up the same way. It would have been near traveled ways, large thoroughfares to make that example. Uh, today, the, 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 the site that's uh, the traditional site is, the, uh, is, called, uh, is marked by the Church of the Holy Sepulchre And that's probably the best option, really, where it is. But regardless, it's out of town, it's public, probably about a half mile or so from where Jesus has been condemned. But we note this, as they went out, they found a man of Cyrene, Simon by name. Cyrene is on the north coast of Africa in modern-day Libya. Uh, There's a large Jewish population there, so this is a a Jew evidently who's come for the Passover. Simon by name, they compelled this man, they pressed him into service to carry his cross. Now, why would they do that? Because normally you would have the condemned man carry the cross. Well, we're not told explicitly, but probably the reality is, is that Jesus isn't strong enough to carry the cross beam at this point. Given the torture that he's been put through, the scourging he's been put through, even what the soldiers did to him, he's probably not strong enough. So they press a man into service, Simon, to carry the cross beam for him on his march to the place of crucifixion. And when they came to a place called Golgotha, which means place of a skull, this is probably it's probably called place of a skull just because it's, it's known for executions. The Romans did this fairly regularly. If they had to put down an insurrection, this is the way they would do it. So this is probably a known crucifixion spot outside the city limits. They go there and they reach it. Verse 34. And when they reach it, they offered him wine to drink mixed with gall. Now, what is that? Wine mixed with gall. Now, Mark tells us that what they gave him was wine mixed with myrrh. Myrrh is actually a bitter substance. Uh, gall could be referred to, it could literally refer to like um, bile, but it often just became to, to note something bitter. And myrrh is bitter. And myrrh also has this property that can um, bring some pain relief. So we're not sure if this is a normal practice or not, but at the very least, some, someone, evidently the soldiers, give them some wine with some myrrh mix. Why? Because this drink would, uh, you're about to get crucified. Very painful process. You're about, your feet and your hands are about to get nailed to wood. Uh, it's common curse, courtesy and mercy to offer some pain relief. But what does Jesus do? He tastes it. He would not drink it. Now, if I, uh, if anyone else was in that situation, they would, they would, they would take it. Why doesn't Jesus take it? Because he doesn't want to dull his wits. He wants the full, his full mental faculties engaged for what is happening. He knows what's going on. He knows this is ultimately the plan of the father. This is the cup that the father has given him to drink. He's not going to dole any of it. But in this noting, noting of Jesus drinking wine mixed with gall, we get another hint that in the midst of Jesus' humiliation, this is actually showing that he is the true king. Well, what do I mean by that? Well, This idea of drinking wine mixed with gall, it's an allusion to an Old Testament text. Go to Psalm 69. Psalm 69 is a long psalm. We're not going to read all of it. I encourage you to read it. Go home and read it. But I will highlight for you verses 20 and 21, and then I will explain the rest of the logic of the psalm to show you that in alluding to this psalm, it actually shows that Jesus is the true king. But I'll show you a quote for you, Psalms 69, verses 20 and 21 first. Reproaches have broken my heart so that I am in despair. I looked for pity, but there was none, and for comforters, but I found none they gave me poison for food, gall, literally. And for my thirst, they gave me sour wine to drink. See in verse 21, the link here that is happening. What is Psalm 69 all about? Remember when the New Testament authors quote the Old Testament or allude to it, they're not just alluding to that verse, they're alluding to the whole context. So what is the context of Psalm 69? Psalm 69 is by David and is a call for deliverance to God for those hating the speaker without cause. The speaker wonders when God will act. The speaker indicates that he is born reproach for God's sake. The distress that the speaker is in is from others in a life-threatening situation. And the speaker is totally dependent on God to act to rescue, but is also wondering when's it gonna happen? Describing his opponents, the speaker of Psalm 69 describes them as having no sympathy. And what we just read is the premier example of this. Those who are opposing him have absolutely no sympathy. They're actually mocking him. They're giving him, effectively, something bitter to drink in the midst of his distress, something sour to drink. The sour wine will show up uh, again later on in Matthew but where the psalm ends it doesn't end in darkness it doesn't end in despair it doesn't end in being mocked by enemies it actually ends in rescue vindication by god god devastates the individual the speaker of psalm 69 his enemies and the speaker's rescued So in the very act of crucifixion, right before Jesus is about to be nailed to the cross, the very act uh, of being offered wine with gall to drink, Matthew's cluing us in that this is fulfilling exactly what the Old Testament talked about and actually shows that Jesus is the righteous one. He is the true king. And not only that, there's a glimmer of hope. Even in the act of taking this wine mixed with gall, because Psalm 69 doesn't end in being the enemy's winning, it ends with rescue. Just a faint glimmer of hope as we go through the crucifixion. So we've seen what um, Jesus tasted, he's not going to drink it, he's going to take the full force of what's coming to him. Verse 35, here's the actual crucifixion. It's mentioned right here. And when they crucified him, doesn't dwell on it, but we know from ancient sources, archaeology, nailed through each wrist, each forearm into the cross, heels nailed with big spikes into the vertical post, elevated up. When they had crucified him, they divided his garments among them by casting locks. Jesus is naked. That's normally how crucifixion would happen. Totally exposed. Total humiliation. But again... Even in this act of deepest humiliation, they divided his garments among them at casting lots. It is just, this, to the soldiers, it's just, this is an opportunity for game. Let's just take away his covering and let's distribute it. That's, that's good for us, just signals absolute callousness and shame. And yet in that moment, we get another allusion to an Old Testament text that is being fulfilled. This time, Psalm 22, this one I will read, though it would be long, because this psalm, Psalm 22, written by David, Matthew alludes to multiple times as Jesus' crucifixion carries on. And so I want you to listen to Psalm 22. And then as we continue through Matthew, you're going to hear repeated phrases. And what Matthew is doing is exactly the same thing he's doing through Psalm 69. He's saying, Jesus is fulfilling prophecy, even in his deepest humiliation, showing that he is the true king. Psalm 22, a psalm of David, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? O my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer, and by night, but I find no rest. Yet you are holy, enthroned on the praises of Israel. In you our fathers trusted, they trusted and you delivered them. To you they cried and were rescued, in you they trusted and were not put to shame. But I am a worm and not a man, scorned by mankind and despised by the people." All who see me mock me. They make mouths at me. They wag their heads. He trusts in Yahweh. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him, for he delights in him. Yet you are he who took me from the womb. You made me trust you at my mother's breasts. On you I was cast from my birth, and, you, and from my mother's womb you have been my God. Be not far from me, for trouble is near, and there is none to help Many bulls encompass me, strong bulls of Bashan surround me. They open wide their mouths at me like a ravening and roaring lion. I am poured out like water, and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax, it is melted before within my breast. My strength is dried up like a potsherd, and my tongue sticks to my jaws. You lay me in the dust of the earth, for dogs encompass me. A company of evildoers encircles me. They have pierced my hands and feet. I, count, I can count all my bones. They stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. But you, O Yahweh, do not be far off. O you, my help, come quickly to my aid. Deliver my soul from the sword, my precious life from the power of the dog. Save me, save me from the mouth of the lion. You have rescued me from the horns of the wild oxen. I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will praise you. You who fear Yahweh, praise him. All you offspring of Jacob, glorify him and stand in awe of him, all you offspring of Israel. For he has not despised or abhorred the affliction of the afflicted, and he has not hidden his face from him. But he has heard and when he cried to him. From you comes my praise in the great congregation. My vows I will perform before those who fear him. The afflicted shall eat and be satisfied. Those who seek him shall praise Yahweh. May your hearts live forever. All the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to Yahweh. And all the families of the nations shall worship before you. For kingship belongs to Yahweh and he rules over the nations. When the soldiers divide Jesus' clothing, it's the first of several references to Psalm 22. And in Psalm 22, as you saw, it's much like Psalm 69. The speaker is in dire distress. There is enemies all around him. Uh, he is in a life-threatening situation. They're taking everything from him, including his clothes. They're being, he's being ashamed. And yet, where does Psalm 22 end? Not in despair, but in rescue and in worship and in kingship. So that in the very act of humiliation of Jesus on the cross, he shows not that he is, that he is the true king, the true son of David, drinking the cup of wrath for his people. Soldiers cast lots, they distribute the clothing. Jesus is naked on the cross. Verse 36 in Matthew 27. Then they sat down, the soldiers sat down and kept watch over him there. And over his head... They put the charge against him, which read, this is Jesus, the king of the Jews. See, Matthew's hitting that refrain multiple times. Remember what the soldiers did in mocking Jesus ahead of time. They said, hail, king of the Jews. And then Matthew, in the placard that is above Jesus' head on the cross, that's what they would normally do is nail a placard with the charge, the reason for crucifixion on the cross, because crucifixion is all about deterrence. The charge is, this is Jesus, the king of the Jews. What is Matthew doing? Matthew's saying, yeah, Jesus is being humiliated, but he is being humiliated as the true king. As the true king, even in the depths of his humiliation, Jesus is showing, God is showing that Jesus is the true king. To finish out the scene, the crucifixion scene, it's like setting up this, the stage, so to speak. Verse 38, then two, not robbers, this is the same term that was used for, for Barabbas, insurrectionists. These are probably Barabbas' fellows that were part of the insurrection. Freedom fighters. Nationalists. Then two insurrectionists were crucified with him, one on the right and one on the left. Now, why does Matthew make a note of that? Obviously it happened, but what is happening? Again, another fulfillment. You don't have to turn back there, but it is a fulfillment of Isaiah 53, 12, again, referencing the suffering servant. And it talks about how the suffering servant will be numbered among the transgressors. So here we have a couple insurrectionists and Jesus is front and center between two of them. He is counted among them. Again, the deepest humiliation, counted as a criminal, a rebel, an enemy of the state, not only of Israel, but of Rome. Jesus shows that he is the true king. Jesus is humiliated as king leading up to the crucifixion. Jesus is humiliated as king at the crucifixion. Jesus is humiliated as king during the crucifixion. Verses 39 through 44. So the scene is set. Three crosses on the place of the skull. All enemies of the state crucified and humiliated. What happens? How do people respond? Verse 39. And those who passed by, remember this is public, this is a main, right by a main thoroughfare. This is like on Oak Street, downtown Hood River, that intersection, that main intersection. This is, what, this is how well-traveled this place is. So we've got passers-by. Those who passed by derided him, they reviled him. Wagging their heads. Remember what Psalm 22 said about those mocking Jesus? They wag their heads in mocking. We get another allusion to Psalm 22. And though passers by, they say this You who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days. That's the charge. Remember back to Jesus' Jewish trial. When they had two witnesses that finally agreed, they agreed that, oh, this guy said, I'm going to destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days. So evidently word is passed among the Jews and from that trial. And it's such an absurd statement. And they mock him because of it. You who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. If you claim to have that power to be able to wipe out the temple and rebuild it, then you have the power to save yourself They don't actually believe that he can save himself. They're just mocking him. If you you really had that power, this charge that was leveled against you, you would save yourself. If you are the son of God, come down from the cross. Now, if you are the son of God, that should maybe ring a bell in your mind because in Matthew 4, that's exactly how Satan talked. If you're the Son of God, make these stones become bread. If you're the Son of God, throw yourself down from the temple. God will rescue you. So what is happening here is these passers-by on their lips is a satanic taunt and temptation to Jesus to come down from the cross. The Son of God, this concept of the Son of God, it's another way of referring to Jesus being the ultimate Davidic king. The one who is the God-man. The true king of Israel. And they can't fathom. It's not that they actually believe he's going to come down. They just, if, if you are the son of God, the son of God should not be on the cross. He should be ruling over Israel. So they mock him. If you're really the Son of God, come down from the cross. You're not the Son of God. You can't be. But as we saw in Jesus' temptation, Jesus is totally surrendered to the will of the Father because. Remember Gethsemane, because he is the son of God, because he is submissive to his father, he is remaining on the cross. He is staying up there. Oh yes, Jesus could come right down. The, nail, uh, the nails can melt away. All the wounds that he has already been inflicted could be automatically healed. He could come down. He could call to himself a leg- multiple legions of angels, and he could conquer the world and slay every single human being on this planet, because that is what each and every one of us deserve. We are not good people. We are rebels against the Holy God and deserve His wrath, and the cross shows that it shows our, our our evil that is in in the midst of us. Though we were not there, it highlights what is in man's heart. And Jesus stays there. Why? He already explained why. Because. This is the blood of the new covenant for the forgiveness of sins. Jesus is dying for his enemies. He is dying for his re- uh, re- rebellious citizens to draw them to himself, to restore a right relationship with God. He is obeying the father and he stays up there taking it. That's just the passersby. by the chief priests do something similar. Verse 41. So also the chief priests with the scribes and the elders mocked him saying, he saved others. He cannot save himself. What are they talking about? They're talking about all his miracles. The language of salvation is, is just overlaps with the language of deliverance. So delivering people from their illnesses, from their diseases, from demon possession. He's done all that. They acknowledge it to some extent, but they're mocking him. He cannot save himself. Oh, it's not that he cannot save himself. He will not. To save others, he will Not save himself. He is the king of Israel. Again, that concept why is Jesus being crucified? Because he's the king. He's claiming to be the king. He is the king of Israel. Let him come down now from the cross and we will believe in him. It's not a genuine offer. They don't believe he's the king. They don't believe he's going to come down. It's just jeering at him. The king of Israel does not belong on the cross. verse 43. They're still speaking. He trusts in God. Let God deliver him now if he desires him. Another allusion to Psalm 22. That's what the mockers in Psalm 22 say to the one that they are mocking. Jesus, in the midst of his humiliation, in the midst of this reviling, is showing he is the true king. Let God deliver him now if he desires him, for he said, I am the son of God. It is incomplete. They cannot compute the idea of the son of God, the ultimate king. The God man being on the cross. And they think, well, God surely wouldn't put him on the cross. The, um, if he is truly the son of God, that's what he claimed. I am the son of God. But what we have seen in Gethsemane, what we have seen in Jesus' relationship to his father is, yes, the father put his son on the cross. Because this is the only way that human sin can be ransomed. Human sin can be atoned for and forgiven. This is the only way. And So, yes, does God delight in Jesus? He has said so. At Jesus' baptism and at his uh, transfiguration, the father loves the son. And because of that, he has him go to the cross to rescue his people. Where we're going to go next week for our Christmas message is back to Matthew 1. And Matthew, Matthew 21 says, you will call his name Jesus. Yahweh saves because he will save his people from their sins. But it's not only the by, it's not only the leaders of Israel who've put him there. Verse 44, and this robbers, the, the insurrectionists who were crucified with him also reviled him in the same way. Now we find out from Luke that one of the, uh, the insurrectionists repents somewhere along the line, but at least at this point, what Matthew is highlighting is everyone. Matthew is building this culminating picture. We've got the Roman soldiers, they're crucifying Jesus. They don't believe he's the Son of God. Uh, they don't believe he's the King of the Jews. We've got the passers by, the Jews. We've got uh, the, 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 uh, the insurrectionists. Everyone has abandoned Jesus. The disciples are nowhere in sight. Jesus is alone, humiliated, mocked, dying. Why? Because he is the actual king. Jesus was crucified for claiming to be the Christ. What does that mean? Christ means, as we've said before, that he is the chosen one of David's line. Who's going to rule over Israel and the whole world, which means he's going to rule over you. He is your rightful king. Now, given all that's happening in Matthew, Jesus' claims for himself at this point sound absurd. Go back to Matthew 26. We read it earlier, but just to... What did Jesus say? What is Jesus thinking in all of this? Before he is charged with blasphemy, Matthew 26, 63... But Jesus remained silent, and the high priest said to him, I adjure you by the living God. Tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God. Jesus said to him, you have said it. But I tell you, from now on, you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. Now, that is an absurd statement, unless it's true. You see, the cross makes, forces you into two options. Only two logical options. You can either you should either respond to the cross with outright ridicule to Jesus. That's absurd. Just like the pastors by, just like the chief priests and elders, just like the insurrectionists, or you have to respond and acclaim Jesus as King, and you respond with repentance, faith, and allegiance. Those are the only two responses that you can have. The cross forces you into one of those two options because. Jesus' statements are absurd on the surface, so unless they're true, and God vindicated Jesus, just like Psalm 22, just like Psalm 69 said, God vindicated Jesus by raising him from the dead. So he is the true king, and he showed it through his humiliation on the cross. Jesus could have rescued himself from the humiliation of the cross, but he did not in submission to his father to rescue his people from their sins. You can't deal with your sin apart from Jesus' humiliation on the cross. You might think that I can clean my sin up. I can do more good things than bad things. I'll be okay, but I don't need to surrender to Jesus as king. No, the only way the Trinity had of dealing with human sin was the cross. And if you despise, if you are embarrassed by Jesus on the cross, then you're shunning the only way that your sins can be dealt with. You acknowledge your sin and you come to Jesus in repentance and faith, following him as a disciple. Repentance is turning your allegiance from sin and self- Trusting Jesus, swearing allegiance to Jesus, and walking and following, which means a life change. Here's how Jesus described it back in Matthew 16. Back when he first announced to his disciples that I'm headed to the cross, Jesus says this in Matthew 16 24, then Jesus told his disciples, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. Remember Simon who bore Jesus' cross following him? It's not that Simon was a disciple at that point, but it gives a picture of what Jesus is calling his people to whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? For the Son of Man is going to come with his angels in the glory of his Father, and then he will repay each person according to what he has done. Faith in Jesus, repentance, discipleship means following Jesus, which means that you relinquish claim on everything. You embrace the humiliation from the world because you know that Jesus is the true king and treasure. And knowing him forever in his kingdom when he comes back is worth it. You're going to have to give up everything. You're going to have to give up everything. Nothing can take Jesus' place. Following Jesus is not a hobby. Sometimes I think that we think Christianity is a hobby. You know, I come on Sunday, I go to my discipleship group, I serve a little bit, I give a little bit. It's a nice hobby. The cross won't let you do that. Cross won't let you do that. It means that you die to self, you follow Jesus, you serve him, and so you serve your brothers and sisters. You'd stop thinking about yourself and you put others' needs ahead of your own because that's exactly what Jesus did on the cross. There's one more application we can think of coming away from. As a Christian, we sin. We still sin. Though Jesus has rescued us from sin and the, 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 the status of being enemies of God and defiled and condemned Jesus rescued us from that as Christians and yet as Christians we still sin unfortunately what's going to help you fight the next time you're tempted to sin remember this remember the scene of the cross remember Jesus crucifixion because Jesus went through the humiliation the pain and the suffering on the cross to die for your sin and that'll make you think twice before giving in to whatever your pet temptation is, Jesus did what he did to cleanse you from your sin and use that reality to help you. Now, we're going to do things a little bit differently today as we close. I'm going to pray for us, but then there's just going to be a couple minutes of silence while Steve plays instrumentally on the piano. And that's just to give you an opportunity, just be a couple minutes, an opportunity to respond to God based on what you've heard from His Word today. We're going to take a couple minutes and do that. Pray pray before the Lord to respond to what you've heard from His Word. And I'm going to call us back for an announcement uh, before you are dismissed. Steve. Father, we come before you And Lord, we, we, can, we can hardly grasp this. This is so monumental, so in, in, incredible. And yet we don't think about it like we ought to. Help us to see the cross aright. And when we think of your advent, Lord Jesus, let us not leave you in the manger, but remember that why you came, why you became a man is to do this. To suffer humiliation for the sake of your people, for the sake of forgiveness for sin. Lord, help us now, even in these couple minutes, to have but dealing with you, business with you, and business with you, Lord Jesus, who are currently right this minute at the right hand of the Father, the one mediator between God and man. We long for your coming again, Lord Jesus. Help us now as we pray to you.